All right, welcome back to Credo Catholic. I'm joined again today by Casey Chalk, and we're continuing our series on TULIP, the five parts of Calvinism or Reformed Protestantism, etc. Very briefly, Casey gave a great uh, kind of disclaimer at the beginning of our last one that said, we're trying to be as fair as we can to to, uh, those who hold these beliefs um, in explaining what they are. But And we're using their own words to do that, so we'll quote from several uh, leading Protestant thinkers and confessions of faith throughout this series. But inevitably, we're not going to be able to describe what everyone believes, and there are certainly variations of thought within Reformed Protestantism, so... Just understand that that you know everything we're trying to define is uh, we're trying to be as fair as possible, we're trying to be as thorough as possible, but we also can't uh, possibly describe all all variations on the theme here. So uh, I think what we're going to describe as these doctrines will hold generally true for most people, but you'll find some who who don't hold to them or don't even hold to all five points of Calvinism, maybe four or three points, etc. Um, so just bear that in mind. We're trying to be as fair as we can. We'd love to uh, hear feedback from listeners if you think we got it wrong. Uh, you can do that sending me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at CredoCatholic.com. But Casey, thanks for joining me again on Credo Catholic. How are you doing? My pleasure. Very well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's just dive right into it here. We're going to talk about unconditional election today. And I have a, I have a theory or a hunch that some of what we say about what Catholics believe about uh, election might actually surprise some Catholics. I think we've kind of shied away from this in, in uh, you know, we certainly don't hear a lot about election in homilies, for example, but some of what we believe might surprise some some folks. So I'm excited to dive in. Uh, but first, let's talk about unconditional election as the you in TULIP and, and why uh, or, or what Reformed Protestants believe about this. So just real quick to situate this in TULIP, the T is total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. So last episode, you can go back and listen to that. It might be helpful if you listen to the Total Depravity episode first, but that's what we did last time. Today, we're doing unconditional election, and I'm going to read a couple of Protestant thinkers here. Uh, John Piper, who I read last time, he has a nice web series that kind of describes or summarizes his uh, positions on uh, a tulip or summarizes what the doctrines of tulip are. And then R.C. Sproul, who um, just recently, I think two years ago, maybe last year, passed away, uh, but was a, a just an intellectual giant in Reformed Protestantism, uh, was a Presbyterian. Uh, And so I'll read a quote from him as well. So this is what Piper says about unconditional election. God's election is an unconditional act of free grace that was given through his son, Jesus, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world, those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in Jesus. Uh, And elsewhere, Piper has argued for double predestination. That is the view that God freely elects some people to heaven and others to hell. um, And that the, the, uh, condemnation or the predestination of some to hell is without consideration for their sins. And and that'll become, I think, more clear and more important as we get into this discussion. So that's John Piper on unconditional election and on double predestination. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, the reformed view of election known as unconditional election means that God does not foresee an action or condition on our part that induces him to save us. Rather, election rests on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he is pleased to save. Unconditional election is another term that I think can be a bit misleading. This is, again, Sproul talking. This is all a quote. Unconditional election is another term that I think can be a bit misleading, so I prefer to use the term sovereign election. If God chooses sovereignly to bestow his grace on some sinners and withhold his grace from other sinners, is there any violation of justice in this? Do those who do not receive this gift receive something they do not deserve? Of course not. If God allows these sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? Of course not. One group receives grace. The other receives justice. That's the end of the quote from Sproul. So here Sproul is uh, articulating a, a view of um, 
of single predestination, not necessarily double predestination. Although I, I'm not sure, Casey, you might know better than I. I'm not sure if Sproul held to double predestination in which God predestines people to hell independent of their their sins, their foreseen sins. You know, I'm not sure. It was very hard to keep track of all the um, unique ideas of, and beliefs of different reform thinkers. Yeah, good point. <laughs> um, so to quote one more, to take it back a little bit further in, in uh, Reformation history, the Westminster Confession of Faith states the doctrine this way, and I'm just going to paraphrase a couple sections from it because it is a long uh, part in the in the standards. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated to everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. All right, good. So that's a Westminster Confession summary of that. What would you say are some of the reasons why Reformed Protestants hold to these beliefs, Casey? Yeah, so um, again, St. Paul looms, just like in a total depravity, St. Paul looms large here. Romans 9, 10 through 13, Paul says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And there St. Paul is quoting Malachi 1.3, and referring to a story from Genesis in which God chooses Jacob to be his instrument to accomplish his salvific purpose while Esau is rejected. Again, uh, also in Romans, same chapter, uh, 9, 15 through 18, the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And one more, also from Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So Calvin interprets this to mean that some people are created with the express purpose of being condemned and that this is in God's divine providence to increase his glory. Okay, got it. So maybe before we dive deep into the Catholic position on this, because it does get pretty complicated, we're going to be throwing around some Latin here and there. Uh, Maybe we should stick on these verses for just a, a minute, Casey, and talk about what the Catholic interpretation of these verses is. So you listed three. One from Genesis in which God says, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Uh, the implication for Reformed Protestants being that God, you know, independent of their merits, uh, their foreseen merits, decided sovereignly in his sovereign goodness to love Jacob and to hate Esau. Uh, the, the analog for us would be some are elected to heaven, some are either predestined, uh, absolutely, or, you know, somehow consigned to eternal damnation and hell. The second verse you said is Paul in Romans saying that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, I will choose uh, sovereignly, you know, I will exercise my sovereign will and I will choose uh, whom I will show mercy to. And then the third verse is this, it's kind of a complicated verse, I think to unpack. And I'd love to hear uh, what you say about it, Casey, but this is where Paul is writing again in Romans chapter nine and talks about um, God making these vessels of wrath for the express purpose of destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. 
and this is a pretty complicated idea. I think it's um, it's very it's very difficult for the human mind, let alone the modern mind, to digest. But this is something that's come up frequently when I have conversations with Calvinists about this idea of of predestination, especially with double predestination. The question that I have is always why would why would God predestine someone to hell, um, independent of their foreseen demerits, their foreseen sins? Um, and the response in accordance with this verse, because this is kind of a proof text for this idea, is that it's for his glory. And because he's sovereign, God can glorify himself however he pleases to do so. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there, but maybe we can just take each of those verses in turn and talk about the Catholic interpretation of them, because I think it's important whenever we have, uh, whenever we have our Protestant brothers and sisters throw scripture verses at us, it's important to remember there's no part of scripture that the Catholic church will be surprised by because we've had the Bible for even longer than our Protestant uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, in fact, about five times as long uh, it, when we're talking about the new Testament alone. So what do we say as Catholics about these verses, Casey? Sure. So um, maybe up front, also good to note that when you're talking about um, double predestination and you'll get into this more when you get into specifics, but uh, Catholic interpretations of a lot of these verses in regards to the the first part of the predestination, the predestination to eternal life, there can be a lot of uh, alignment between them. It's more in the double, the second part of double predestination, the uh, reprobation, um, just based on God's sort of sovereign will, apart from any deeds that individual persons have done that we start to get into some divergence. Do you think it would make sense then to talk about the Catholic view before you do the Catholic interpretation of the scripture passages? It, yeah, it might be. Okay. Yeah, that's totally fine. Well, let's, let's dive in then. So we outlined the reform view, um, unconditional election. Uh, and in the, in the case of some scholars, certainly, uh, and I'm not, I couldn't give you a list of which of the reformers held to an absolute double predestination, but some of them did for sure. Um, Contra that, the Catholic Church says something different. Now, here's where it's interesting, and this is this is what I was saying at the beginning might be surprising to many people. Predestination, in the sense that God predestines certain souls to heaven, is a dogmatic article of faith. So you'll often hear the, uh, this part of Catholic soteriology explained away as we believe in free will, and that's true. We certainly believe in free will, but but it's not it's not an Arminian sense of free will. Uh, in other words, our our free will um, is not independent of God's predestination in all instances. Um, and so we do hold the predestination as a dogmatic article, article of faith. It is real. But the type of predestination that we hold to is different from what Piper or Sproul or, for that matter, the vast majority of the reformers were talking about. Um, to get an idea of this, I went to Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. Ludwig Ott was a um, 20th century uh, theologian and priest who wrote this gigantic book that I highly recommend. It's, it's a really good reference book to have on your shelf and it's called fundamentals of Catholic dogma in which he explains in, in great detail, but not too long to be onerous, uh, the fundamentals of the faith that we believe as Catholics. And he does so by uh, citing chapter and verse copiously, uh, not just the fathers, but also every single one of the councils. Uh, and so it, it's a very thoroughly well-researched and, and well-written book. So I went to that to understand more about this idea. And uh, Ott says, this is the article of faith. God, by an eternal resolve of his will, predestines certain men on account of their foreseen sins to eternal rejection. Okay, so I was saying before that the Catholic position is that God predestines people to heaven. Okay, got it. That's good. 
Uh, and we also hold that God predestines certain people to damnation. Now, you might say that sounds a lot like double predestination, and it is a sense of double predestination, but the key difference is that God predestines certain men to damnation on account of their foreseen sins, right? And because we have free will, those sins are freely committed by the people who commit them, and so there is no uh, deprivation of justice for God to uh, predestine those people to rejection. Now, this is a very important distinction, and it's very different. This idea of predestination is very different from what the reformers taught. Uh, John Calvin was one of them who taught a positive reprobation of what we call unconditional predestination. Uh, John Wycliffe did as well, Huss did. Uh, and this is not actually a super new idea. Uh, Lucius, all the way back in the fifth century, was this monk who kind of went rogue and taught the same idea positive reprobation. In other words, God positively sends someone to hell or predestines someone to hell. That would be the uh, positive retrobation, reprobation. And it's unconditional or absolute in the sense that God does that independent of any foreseen sins, right? So the correct Catholic view is that God does predestine souls to hell, but it's only, only, and this is crucial, it's only on account of the sins that that person commits. And he can do that because God is outside of time and because God is omnipotent, and because and because God is omniscient. So he can foresee, with his perfect omniscience, all the sins that a person will commit, and on account of those sins, can predestine that soul to hell. But to believe that God predetermines that a soul will go to hell, in other words, I use the word predetermine as different from predestination in the sense that God is sort of stacking the deck already. God is um, somehow forcing that person to sin or is predestining that person to hell without regard to the sins that that person will commit. That's a heresy. Uh, and Trent, the council of Trent was very clear on that because it had to be responding to these ideas of the reformers, guys like Calvin, uh, and say exactly what was and was not true. So yes, God does predestine men to hell, but it is only because he foresees their sins and predestines them on that account. What he does not do is condemn them to hell independent of their sins um, or sort of stack the deck and make sure that they do sin so that they go to hell. Now, I want to come back to the sort of positive predestination that I talked about where God also predestines men to heaven. This is again an article of faith. Uh, Ludwig Ott says, God, by his eternal resolve of will, has predetermined certain men to eternal blessedness, end quote. Now, this is also, there's, an, there's a unique discussion to understand here about how Catholics have thought about this. And you're actually, as a Catholic, you're permitted to hold a couple of different views on this. Um, there's, there's one that is uh, that God predestines men to blessedness without consideration of their foreseen merits. That would be what we call absolute predestination. Um, or you can believe as a Catholic that God predestines certain men to heaven. And uh, obviously, when I say men, I'm talking about mankind, men and women. God predestines certain men to heaven on account of their foreseen merits. In other words, their foreseen cooperation with his grace. That would be what we call conditioned predestination. And as I mentioned, the Catholic can believe either one. St. Thomas Aquinas was in the absolute predestination camp. So he said, no, God uh, predestines certain men to eternal blessedness independent of their foreseen um, merits. Uh, St. Robert Bellarmine agreed with Thomas on this. But there are others, St. Francis of Sales, for example, who held to this conditioned predestination that God, in the same way that God 
uh, predestines men to hell on account of their foreseen sins. He predestines certain men to heaven on account of their foreseen cooperating with grace. Um, so I think the, uh, the one, one crucial thing here to, to think about is that um, God can, in fact, predestine men to hell. And that's not an injustice, again, if based on their foreseen sins. Um, because kind of like actually R.C. Sproul said at the beginning of here, he said, um, you know, is there a violation if God chooses to save a sinner and then not save another sinner? Uh, R.C. Sproul says no. And Augustine, in a similar vein, said that God is good. God is just. He can save a person without good works because he is good, but he cannot condemn anyone without evil works because he is just. So if anyone asks, you know, as St. Thomas and St. Robert Bellarmine believed in, you know, how is absolute predestination compatible with God's grace? Uh, the answer is in St. Augustine. Uh, God is good, so he can save anyone he wants to. Um, and he's just, so he can uh, he cannot um, condemn anyone without evil works because he is just. So that, I think, also supports the idea of, um, you know, the idea against absolute predestination to hell, what we might call absolute um, uh predestination of reprobation because those sins need to exist for God to send someone to hell. Otherwise he would be unjust. What do you think, Casey? That's exactly right. And um, so when we, when we get into responding to all of these Protestant proof texts, in as much as they're talking about God in his sovereign will, choosing people for election for eternal life, um, Regardless of uh, of anything that they've done, Catholicism ag agrees um, that 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 exact is exact is exactly the case. Um, the problem comes in when some Calvinists who subscribe to uh, the double predestination look at these verses from uh, Saint Paul in Romans and then him citing Malachi. Um, uh, we take issue with th with this idea that that God would condemn people. Um, separated from even their sins. So um, one example, so one thing to talk about is uh, those familiar with scholarship, the Old Testament and Jewish poetry uh, know that hyperbole and extremes are often employed by ancient Jewish writers for the purpose of emphasis. Even Jesus does this in the gospels, right? Like you must hate, hate your father and mother if you're gonna follow me. Um, so in this case, many Jewish scholars interpret ancient Semitic expressions, meaning that God loved Esau less than Jacob, not that, uh, God uh, hated Esau um, while he loved Jacob. So, um, and not that he, so in, he, in other words, he's not predestining Esau and his Edomite descendants to eternal damnation. Um, and in, indeed, in the Old Testament, in other places, we see that Yahweh, um, the, the God of the Old Testament, uh, demonstrates an enduring concern with the Edomites, uh, that which would be at odds with this idea that Esau and his uh, line have been uh, eternally reprobated, right? So in Deuteronomy 23, 7 through 8, we read, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you are a sojourner in his land. The children of the third generation that are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord, right? So God's even providing a means by which these other people groups, uh, and in particular, we're looking at the Edomites uh, from Esau, that they actually might join uh, be sort of like engrafted in to the covenant people of Israel. Yeah. So this interpretation then, if I'm understanding you correctly, Calvin, to, to link it back to my sort of exposition of Catholic teaching on this, it seems totally consistent with what the Catholic is saying that God does. Yes, indeed 
predestined certain men to eternal blessedness, like Jacob, right? Jacob have I loved. Um, that could be, the Catholic can believe, either um, without or with consideration to his foreseen cooperating with grace, his foreseen merits. Um, but that's not inconsistent at all. And then if you're saying when, when God says Esau, have I hated, he's not actually saying, have I hated? He's saying I've loved less than Jacob. And so that would be akin to someone who is not predestined to heaven, uh, in an absolute sense, uh, in, in the way that others might be right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I'm reading it. That's how a lot of other Catholic, uh, scriptural interpreters have done as well. Um, and we see this again, um, or something similar. It, the ancient Israelites didn't teach Calvinist divine reprobation in uh, in Amos two, uh, one verses one through three. Uh, we read, "Thus says the Lord: For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment." So the idea is, uh, God is punishing them for their sins. He's not punishing them because of some eternal um, uh, so- sovereign decision. Um, that has no recourse to, or that has no relationship to the things that they've done. All right, now let's talk about this Romans passage because this vessels of wrath fitted fitted for destruction is a, a very widely cited proof text for um, for unconditional election. Uh, in the uh, on the website that I found this Piper sum, summary of unconditional election, he talks about this at length. Um, he has in many homilies talked about you know what it means to be a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction, etc. Uh, seems to be on first blush a pretty strong proof text for the reform position, but uh, not the case, is it, Casey? No, and here I'm going to rely on my friend Scott Hahn pretty effectively because he's much uh, more—he's a much better uh, biblical scholar than I am. But the way that he interprets Saint Paul in Romans nine twenty three nine twenty two is that um, what Paul Paul is not here uh, like consigning people on both sides of destiny, heaven and hell. Rather, St. Paul is setting forth a scenario for the sake of argument in order to defend God against the charge of acting unjustly toward Israel. He's not delivering a prophecy that reveals who's going to reach heaven and who's going to reach hell. Rather, uh, Paul is concerned with God's freedom to assign different roles to different persons in implementing his designs for history. So this is more a matter of God choreographing the temporal election of some and the hardening of others in order to accomplish his plan of redemption. So it's within this historical frame of reference that the Lord has a purpose for all the vessels of Israel, noble and ignoble alike. All right. So this is, yeah, this is not about eternal destination of souls, but this is about the sort of God shaping and reshaping the temporal order in order to accomplish his meta narrative, his meta story, his story of salvation. Right. So again, similar to how... Yahweh in uh, in Exodus is described as hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? Well, heart, Pharaoh's heart in one sense was already hardened, right? <laughs> He'd already committed sin, right? So in the, in the same way here, when talking about the you know these vessels of uh, of destruction, um, I, I think we need to we, we should interpret it in a similar way, right? That it's not as if God is foreordaining individual people's sins, but more they already are sinners, and then He then uh, assigns them a certain role in salvation history because of their sins. Right. That makes sense. And it's perfectly consistent with this view of um, God's predestination on account of foreseen sin rather than simply uh, consigning them there or somehow predetermining that they will sin. Exactly. All right. So as we wrap this up, Casey, 
let's finish with how we finished our first episode on total depravity and talk about why these differences matter. I sort of pitted these against each other in total in our total depravity episode and said, what's what's the big deal, right? Some might say we're totally depraved. Some say we're partially depraved. Why does it really matter? Uh, I think we came up with some good ideas about why it does matter on the on the topic of election. Right. Um, I think the difference is even more stark, but it might appear uh, less so. So on the one hand, everyone agrees, uh, and by everyone, I really mean Catholics and Reformed Protestants on this point, uh, agree on some form of election, right? Uh, some form of predestination. Uh, the Catholic says, yes, God certainly predestines people to heaven. Could be on account of their, their graces, could be not. Uh, you can believe either one. And yes, God does actually also predestine people to hell, but it is absolutely not independent of their foreseen demerits, what we would call uh, anti-previsa merita, which would be before uh, their foreseen merits or demerits. Um, so God does not predetermine where we go without consideration to the sins that we commit. Uh, and to believe that he would would be a violation of um, God's justice in that sense. So the reformed Protestants, uh, the reformers, uh, and I think Calvin's the standard bearer here. I can't speak for um, for all of them, but Calvin would say, no, there's absolute double predestination. God, in his sovereignty, simply predestines some men to hell without considering their sins. So why, why does this matter, Casey? Why does the difference here uh, in this understanding of our soteriology make such a big difference? Oh, man. Well, it makes a really substantial difference when we get into the question of how we actually determine who is elect. So in the Catholic paradigm, elections manifested through the sacraments. Um, if a person is baptized, he or she is de facto elect in the sense that he or she is justified by the grace of the sacrament um, via God. God is the one who gives the sacrament. The sacraments don't operate on their own. Um but of course, that person can can forfeit that election through mortal sin or the rejection of the Christian faith. But he or she can also regain it again via recourse to the sacraments, namely confession and then the Eucharist. So as long as one confesses one's sins in the sacrament of confession in good conscience, meaning basically like not not purposely holding things back they know that they've committed, that actually provides an objective criteria by which that they can then perceive their election. Um, and indeed. Um, I think Calvinists may be surprised to know that one stage in the sacrament of confirmation uh, for those who are unbaptized catechumens, right? So like adults who have decided they want to become Catholic, there's a stage in that in the confirmation process called the right of election for this exact reason, this idea that we're recognizing that uh, these people who are about to come into the church have actually been chosen by God via his grace. Okay, so in contrast to the objective nature of election in the Catholic paradigm, things are much more subjective in the Reformed. So Reformed thinkers have argued quite a bit about the criteria of election, going all the way back to Calvin, and they are inherently subjective. So Reformed theologians talk about the objective status of those who are elect, but that still leaves open the question of how does anyone know? Um, so a common Reformed pastoral response, response that one often hears is something like, uh, it goes like this, turn your eyes in faith to Christ, Christ is secure, right? So that's the objective. Christ is, he's objectively secure, an objectively secure um, source of confidence. Because Christ is, is secure, you, the, the Christian who are wondering about your election, can also be secure. And um, among 
Calvinist Puritans, it became common to talk about external or visible manifestations of election, right? So things like a public profession of faith or good works, acts of charity. Uh, so as a result of that, we see people in many Protestant traditions influenced by Calvinism who are like frequently making renewed professions of faith in order to restore that sense of being one of the elect. But all this reduces election to is some sort of mental game, right? Any Anytime you're unsure of your election, you're supposed to look to Christ and conjure up thoughts or feelings that you're elect and declare your faith for Christ again or consider your good works. But how can any of those objective, I mean, uh, subjective experiences be objective criteria? They can't be. Um, and Calvin doesn't make this any easier. He has this other doctrine, which um, is often overlooked, or a lot of Reformed think thinkers and especially pastors don't want to talk about it. Uh, he had this doctrine called evanescent grace. In that taught, uh, here Calvin taught that a person can have all the outward and even inward manifestations of being one of the elect and still actually be damned. Um, and if you don't believe me, I, I, I'll go ahead and read the relevant section from his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 2, Section 11. He says, I am aware it seems unaccountable to somehow faith is attributed to the reprobate, seeing that it is declared by Paul to be one of the fruits of election. And yet the difficulty is easily solved. For though none are enlightened into faith and truly feel the efficacy of the gospel, with the exception of those who are foreordained to salvation, yet experience shows that the reprobate are sometimes affected in a way so similar to the elect that even in their own judgment, there is no difference between them. Hence, it is not strange that by the apostle a taste of heavenly gifts and by Christ himself a temporary faith is ascribed to them. Not that they truly perceive the power of spiritual grace and the sure light of faith, but the Lord, the better to convict them and lead them without excuse, instills into their minds such a sense of, sense of his goodness as can be felt without the spirit of adoption. That's pretty horrifying. <laughs> it is. Ter it's terrifying. Oh my so, goodness. <laughs> um, so in effect, what, all, what, what does all this mean? It means that a Catholic can say in an objective sense, Christ loved me personally and died for me personally. A Calvinist, the best a Calvinist can really do, if he's going to be consistent, is say, Christ loves the elect, and he died for the elect. And it's possible that I could be one of them. And I hope I'm one of them. Uh, and I think right. I'm one of them because I do all the right things, and I, I even think the right things, and I feel like I love Jesus, and I, I feel like he's given me these graces. But if Calvin's to be believed, <laughs> that all might be a ruse. Right. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty rough. I'm glad you read that section. Uh, that's fascinating. I, I, we don't have time to dive further into evanescent grace, but that I can see why it's not preached on very frequently, Casey. No, it, but, but this, it, this is a huge pastoral problem um, that Calvinist uh, churches face, and one that I, I, I experienced quite a bit. I mean, oftentimes I had conversations with people where they would say, how can I really be sure that I'm one of the elect? And I, again, like a really common response to that by reformed pastors is to say, if you're really concerned about it, it means you're in. Well, what is that? Where does that come from? I don't, yeah, that's, I don't remember that's that being in the New Testament. No, that's anywhere. in uh, that's in book, book 17 of the institutes. It's a, it's one of the, it's one of the lost manuscripts. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so yeah, that's so interesting. You know, th this is reminding me, I, I spoke with someone who is coming into the church, um, very shortly and asked them one of the things, or, you know, what were the things that made them want to become Catholic. And his response was very interesting to me because he said that basically I wanted to know what I have to do um, as far as, you know, following the moral law goes. And that on first blush, it might sound like this guy is saying that, you know, Catholicism is about 
works righteousness or works salvation. But I don't think that's what he was saying. I mean, maybe it was. I, I don't know him that well. But I think what he was saying is that he he wants to be a good person. He wants to follow God. And he wants some assurance that, you know, if he tries hard um, and he, 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 he tries to follow God by doing these objective things, um, that he has some assurance of salvation in that regard. He doesn't have to worry about this. Am I, am I in the elect, et cetera? And let me back up because I can hear some criticisms already. When I say he tries hard, I'm not talking about, you know, earning your salvation. I'm not saying that we're salvation by works, but we are an incarnational faith. We have an incarnational faith and um, the Christian is called to cooperate with the grace that is in them. And, and, and one of the things we hold is that the, the works that we do when cooperating with grace are meritorious for our salvation, not because of our goodness, but because of, of Christ's goodness for us. And I think that's a unique insight um, that this this uh, candidate for in RCIA had for me when he when he said that was one of the reasons why he wanted to become Catholic. I can certainly appreciate that. I think so. Again, speaking as a former Calvinist, there's something about tulip, and certainly um, this the you uh, that we've talked about tonight, uh, unconditional election, which at first glance it's it's really heartening, right? Because we. Um, we live in a world where there's so much doubt and fear and insecurity, and the Calvinist tradition says God is sovereign. He's in complete control, and he will save those that he wants to save. You do not need to doubt or fear. You know, if you if uh, the elect, their, their, uh, their state is sure, um, and there's, there's, there is a pastoral comfort that can come from that. But then the problem is, is that once, once you kind of start to um, – ingrain that a little bit into your psyche, you start to go, well, wait a minute, how do I know that I'm one of the elect? And this is where these psychological and spiritual problems start to develop and ultimately can be terribly damaging to people. Um, and, I, and I've known many Calvinists that came out of the, um, to the, the Reformed tradition and came into Catholicism that struggled a lot with this because they were terrified of being damned. And actually, well, you, you mentioned St. Francis de Sales earlier. I, I'm sure that you're familiar with his story. Um, I mean, early on, before he was a bishop of Geneva, he struggled with this a lot. This this terror of how do I know that I'm saved? And I'm, um, I think that some of that was because of the influence of Calvinism um, in in Europe at that time. Yeah, no doubt. And some of his um, spiritual disciples struggle with this as well. He lost, I forget her name, but he lost one of his spiritual disciples to Jansenism um, because she was struggling with this um, kind of spiritual perfectionism, etc. Um, but many of his spiritual disciples, or at least several of them really battle with this because this was when Jansenism was very prominent um, and and making significant headway against the authentic teachings of the church. Yeah. Well, I think we can wrap it up there, Casey. We'll finish our conversation of unconditional election there. So next up, we have limited atonement. And I think you ended, you ended your commentary with a pretty good um, segue when you said that the Catholic says that, you know, Christ died for me, um, personally for me, and I can believe that with total confidence. Whereas the Calvinist, if being consistent, says... Christ does indeed love the elect. Christ did indeed die for the elect. And I hope that I'm one of them. Uh, and so next time we'll talk about limited atonement uh, and talk about all of what that means and uh, what the Catholic says in response and what the Catholic should believe. So Casey, thanks so much for joining me for another one of these. Uh, I'm learning a ton as we're going through these together and I hope it's edifying for our listeners as well. If you are a listener and you want to ask one of us a question, just shoot me an email, zaczach at creedalcatholic.com. And we'll be back next time for more on limited atonement. Casey, thanks so much for joining us. To our listeners, God bless you.